uh, the scripture text in your, your worship guide. Before we, uh, we turn to the reading of God's word, before we, we turn to hearing him um, through the, the preaching, let's, let's pray and let's ask for the blessing of the Lord upon us in this time. Lord God, this morning here as we've come into worship, it has been a time of response, of hearing your word to us, us responding back in turn, how you have called us here and we've responded through song. You have, um, uh, we have confessed our sins to you. You have, re- you have told us then who we are in Jesus Christ and of the forgiveness that's in him. We are responding now again here uh, as we did through song, but now we're, we're hearing your word and then we are responding to it as well now. And as we listen to your word in this time, we pray that your spirit would be with us and forming us in our response. That we would be responding with our whole selves, with our minds as we listen, with our hearts to be moved And we pray that as we go from here, then it would also be through our lives as they are lived. Uh, This is a work that can't come from us. It can only come from you, God. So we ask, we beg that your spirit would be with us in this time, helping us to be attentive and changing our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name, and we pray this for his sake. Amen. This is Philippians 3, verses 1 through 11, and pay careful attention because this is God's very word. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Amen. Thanks be to God. Technological devices, no matter what it is, comes with a default setting. Again, it doesn't matter what it is. You've got one on you right now if you have your phone. Uh, your, your, Your phone, televisions, Computers of whatever flavor or whichever operating system you use, they all have a default setting. The setting that comes pre-programmed with it. And no matter how much you mess it up, you can always reset it back to the factory defaults. 
But your phone isn't the only thing that has a default setting. So do you. Though we are all individuals with our own characteristics, our own backgrounds, our own personality traits, every person has a default setting. And that default setting is to live by works. Some sort of adherence to works, to a works principle. It's the default way we operate. So what do I mean by works? What is it that our default setting is works-oriented? Well, it's not only our drive to performance or that we would perform according to a certain standard, but it's to be accepted in that way. It's more of taking pride in, in performing well or, um, or, or seeking excellence. What it is is actually making that, the drive to perform, the seeking of excellence, making that the narrative then, the story that drives us, the story which forms our sense of finding approval, of finding our justification, And it's the story then that controls our lives. It's the endless quest of seeking to be enough. To measure up then in the eyes of the world. Or to some principle, either man-made, self-imposed, or divine. It's the sense of dissatisfaction that when we fail, gives this away. When we don't perform as we thought that we ought to have. We then subsequently feel worthless or ashamed or like we don't belong. And it's also the default for our relation to God. The thought of that my approval or even the level of how approved I am before God is, is formed by my performance. Or the idea that acceptance is in some way tied to what it is that I do. Maybe wholesale or maybe just in part. Maybe I started it or I worked to finish it. And if you're unsure of of the Bible, if you're not very familiar with it, if you're coming in this morning without a background or or in, in the Christian faith, then that forms here the basis for pretty much all religious identities, except for what we'll see this morning from what the Bible says. But here's the thing, though. This default way of works. Living in this way is exhausting. Do you know what I'm talking about? Have you felt that? Have you felt the exhaustion of that? When, when something even that is good and noble becomes draining because a pursuit of it out of a sense of trying to measure up and to gain acceptance sucks all the joy and the life out of it. And instead we're left on an endless treadmill going on and on after an end of what seems that we will we never reach. When is my enoughness truly enough to bring an end to this searching for approval or of acceptance or of justification. Well, the Apostle Paul here writes in verse 1 for us to rejoice. And Paul can write that because his message consistently throughout all of his writings in the New Testament is not one of the treadmill of works, but it is one of comfort and grace. The comfort that comes from faith. Paul is all about grace. It comes from a man who personally knew grace. The one who called himself the chief of sinners could also bask in the grace and mercy of the God whom he had once been opposed to in his previous life. But even though Paul was all about grace, he also knew the, the human default. About how easy it is to slip back into our work's default even when we've experienced grace. We love grace 
but we still feel that pull back to works, don't we? And here in our passage, Paul's writing to the church in Philippi, a church who understood grace, a church who loved grace, and he warns them to beware of those who might teach otherwise, right? In verse 2 there. Why would he take the time to warn this grace-loving church to watch out for those who wanted to mix works and grace? Because it's easy to unconsciously slip back into our defaults. And so Paul issues this warning to look out for them because he wants his readers and he wants us too, as we listen to this, as we read this, to live in joy and freedom and not to, sh- to shift back into wearisome living according to works. But he also writes this because that affects how you relate to God. Do you approach him by works or do you approach him by grace? Because that means everything, not only in how you live now and how you understand the character of God, but how you will will relate to him forever. This is the ground of your relationship with him, of your acceptance with him, and it only comes in one way. And this is going to require here, as we listen here, this is going to require our defaults to be reset. We're going to need our settings reprogrammed from works to grace. And that might seem a little unintelligible to us at first. Maybe you've read stories or you've experienced at first hand of the language of someone's phone being reset for whatever reason. Whether it's some sort of technological glitch. Whether it gets into the hands of some toddler. uh, It's a cruel prank. Whatever it is. But I'm not talking about just being switched to some other, some other language in English, but a language with a whole other non-phonetic alphabet. And maybe you could figure out how to go back into your settings somehow and reset it back if it was German or French or some language like that. But how about Cyrillic or Arabic or Korean when you can't even recognize the letters in an attempt to shift it back? Well, our default changing from works to grace, from law to gospel is like that. It seems unintelligible. We don't quite fully understand because grace, because the gospel is just so foreign to what our basic inclination of works tells us. But the answer, though, isn't to go back and to change our defaults back to a language that we can comprehend. The answer is to learn a new language. To make that our new default, to gain a better acquaintance with grace. And that requires a massive shift. And we're going to look at four shifts which entail coming from our text this morning. And one of them is the first one here, a shift in self-perception. It's a shift in self-perception, how we view ourselves. In verse 2, Paul gives this warning to steer clear from those who want to mingle works with the gospel. And he's referring to a group who taught that to be a real Christian, to up your spiritual game, to really approach God, you had to follow along with the Old Testament Jewish law. Your spirituality had to take on a Jewish flavor as you introduced the old demands. But this church in Philippi, first of all, wasn't full of Jews. It was full of Gentiles, Greeks, And so these teachers insisted then, if you really want to please God, you had to be circumcised and live like a Jew. Now, there's nothing wrong in itself with circumcision. And if you want to eat kosher, that's fine. But why? What's the motive? Is it to get closer to God? Is it to attain some higher level of spirituality? 
Again, that's the classic appeal to the works default. And so Paul, Mr. Grace himself here, calls these teachers out, and he reveals who they really are. He first calls them dogs. That's not a derogatory name that we might think, but it was a common Jewish term for a Gentile or for someone who lived outside the community community of faith. He then refers to them as evildoers, which, interestingly enough, they would have thought themselves to be instructors of righteousness. And then most graphically, he calls them mutilators. And in reference to circumcision, you get the idea. But in an ironic twist, what he's doing here is showing their true identity. They are more akin to these pagan Gentiles than they are to the, the good Jews that they thought they would have been, let alone true followers of God. Because what they're doing is they're reverting back to mixing works and grace. And meanwhile, they're living self-deceived lives then. They've deceived themselves into thinking about who they are. And living by this works idea, living according to the law, necessitates this self-deception or else you fall into despair. If you want to live by the way of works, then that requires you to live with a skewed perception. To believe that you hit the target more than you miss and that you're doing okay with your current percentage. Or to misperceive that the target that you're trying to hit, the target of righteousness, is way easier than it appears. And because of that then, I'm accepted, I'm justified. But if that's the case then, if it comes by our actions, then I also also become superior as I'm now the standard. I've become enough, and then I can see the deficiencies in everyone else's sense of, of enoughness or their lack thereof. And what do we weigh them against? Well, we end up weighing others against ourselves, of course, implying then that we've got it better. And the reason that living by works requires this self-deception is because apart from that, apart from, from, from trying to tell us who we are there, your life is going to be one of despair and despondency. If our eyes are opened, if we, then we see our failure and we instead live in, de- in dejection and insecurity because we haven't measured up. You're left with, I've got nothing. But Paul, though, according to Paul, that's the, that's the best place to be because at that point, when we are honest but painful there, It forces us to look outside of ourselves to some other way of finding acceptance. And that brings us then to verse 3. This is what it's like then to live by grace. To approach God not with circumcision of the flesh, but a heart that is cleansed and circumcised by the Spirit of God apart from any influence that you or I could do. To have no confidence in the works that we do and instead making our boast and our glory being Jesus Christ and what he has done. We get to hold him then as our confidence, as our perfection. We get to cling to the works of Jesus rather than our own works. And that leads us to the second shift then, a shift in values. It's a shift in values. Seeing our own resumes for what they are and then giving them up for Christ's. It's one thing to, think of, to, to speak of these things in theory, but it's in something very different to, to individualize it and speak with it with experience. And that's what Paul does in verse 4. He begins to speak hypothetically and in this rhetorical fashion. He says, if you think that you have a confidence in what you've done and in your own self, 
He says, take a look at my resume. Because you're going to have a hard time finding a more qualified candidate than myself. I grew up naturally as a Jew from a Jewish or from a practicing Jewish household. I was circumcised from the beginning. I'm from a prominent, uh, a, a prominent um, tribe. I was raised according to the ways. I come from a position of religious privilege. And I used that properly, and I carried it into adulthood as well. I became a Pharisee, and I devoted myself to the law. I had so much zeal that I was willing to persecute the church. There was no question about my sincerity. I was living faithfully in accordance with all the law. How many of you all can say that? Get back to the line, please. I'll take my place at the beginning. But for as valuable as all of that may have seemed... He was willing to give that all up because he found something better. He found Christ, what he has, and who Christ is. The best way to be broken from our self-deception is to be shown perfection, to gaze at the real thing. At that point, then, we begin to notice our deformities and our imperfections. And as Paul beheld Jesus Christ and his perfection, he began to realize then his own failures in the resume that he brought to the table. In one sense, Paul did have a solid righteousness until he saw Jesus and he just had to have it. A perfect righteousness that came from God himself, accomplished by the Son of God, the one who knew the very standard all along, the one who knew um, what it was, and could actually meet it then with his whole life. But not only a righteousness that is, that is perfect, but also a righteousness that is freely given from Christ. A righteousness not of our works, but the work of Jesus Christ that is given to us freely by faith. And so Paul then can set aside and is willing to set aside his own resume because he's given something better. He doesn't need it. He has everything that he has in Christ. And it changes the way that he views even his own resume. He refers to it in these common financial categories of gain and loss. Or you could think of it in terms of assets and liabilities. On one hand, he has all the gains. Of those assets which seem to be of value. Everything that seemed to pad his resume, those works that he used to count there as assets, they seemed valuable. But that's no longer the case. He doesn't see them as assets anymore, but as losses, as liabilities. Even that which was damaging to him. What he thought before would be a a profit and would increase his gains actually now works to destroy him. And why? Not only because they're worthless to bring, but because they whisper back to our default of works. And they draw us away from beholding Christ in faith. The more that we look away from Christ, we inevitably look back to the resume of our own works that's sitting in our hands. And the more we look at it and we start to flip through the pages, we forget the beauty of Christ's perfection. And we start thinking that our own resume, yeah, it's not so bad. It's okay. And it pulls us away from the categories of grace and faith. And that's why Paul continues to call his old gains not only loss, but rubbish. Except rubbish is too weak of a word. It's actually referring to a pile of dung with some some old, moldy table scraps thrown in. I'm I'm serious. I'm I'm not using that for rhetorical flourish. It's, It's actually literally what it means. 
But the thing is here, if you see the resume in your hands as manure, you're going to drop it, aren't you? And if that's what you try to present before God, you won't just look pretty silly. You'll actually be ashamed of what you have. And this is why this shift requires a wholesale renouncement of our works, not just an adjustment of life, not trying to add Christ into what we already have. It, if it relies on Jesus' righteousness without attempting for us to contribute anything, then any scheme which does otherwise isn't going to be successful. Your works and his works are like oil and water. They don't mix. Or rather, the manure of your own works isn't going to blend very nicely with the spotlessness of Jesus. You can't insist on keeping it pretty well and then let Jesus come in and fill in the gaps. You can't begin with Jesus and then cover over or add in your own works or rely upon yourself to finish it or to to give yourself security or work to stay in his favor. Because what do those do? All of those approaches just still appeal to the same default of works, of the law. It all brings a righteousness of your own doing to the table. And in fact, you're actually pulling away from the beauty of what Jesus has. Is there really anything that you think that you could add to that? Are our views of ourselves and our own abilities really that inflated? It's because of the perfect righteousness of Jesus, there is never a point where you will be more or less loved and accepted by God the Father as that moment when you first believe. Because guess what? It's the perfect righteousness of Jesus that's given to you. Nothing that you can do to add on that. Nothing that you can do to build on that. Nothing that can take that away if you are holding and resting in Jesus Christ alone. Or as our affirmation of faith said, we receive and we rest upon Jesus Christ alone for our salvation as he is freely offered to us in the gospel. And this, then we get to our third shift. It's a shift in motives. It's living to know Christ. That's the motive here. Paul is obviously thrilled with the righteousness of Christ that is given to him by faith. But he's really enamored not only with the saving benefits that come from Christ, but Christ himself. In verse 6 there he says, he counts everything as lost for the sake of knowing Christ. Verse 10, that I may know him. The real value is Jesus himself in knowing not just what he can do for you, but in knowing him as a person. Now, to you married people, what's the real value in your spouse? Why did you get married? Is it in your spouse as a person? Having them as the whole person or in just simply the benefits of being married? Tax breaks, having a partner, whatever it is. No, the value is in the person. It's in having and knowing Jesus himself. Not just merely being given his credits, having his blood atoned for your sins. It's in knowing his self-giving character as he went to the cross when he even knew you and your own unloveliness. It's knowing his humility and love. It's understanding his mercy that he has for undeserving sinners. It is experiencing the power of his life in close union with him. It's, it's his love of giving gifts to us, the gift of the Spirit. It's knowing and seeing and recognizing his beauty. See, though the gospel is no less than the forgiveness of sins, it's also more. 
Because you gain Jesus. You have the privilege of knowing him closer than a friend or a brother. It's what Paul refers to as being in him. He walks alongside you in life. You get to know him not from afar, but in union with him through the joys and the sorrows. When Paul writes of Jesus here, there's a true affection in his words. He's no longer driven endlessly to keep in a proper relationship by following the law, but he is free to pursue and know Jesus here as the pursuing motivator or as as the motivating principle in, in life. Amazingly, in all of Paul's writings, and he talks about Jesus a lot, there's only one place where he uses this phrase, Christ Jesus, my Lord. He writes often, Christ Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, but there's only once that he writes with this personal affection, Christ Jesus, my Lord. And it's here in verse 8. If you know Jesus, how well do you know him? How acquainted are you with his person? See, for Paul, the wonder and joy of knowing, of knowing and gaining Jesus has just begun, and it transforms his life. He gets to know Jesus in his resurrection state for eternity, actually seeing and being with him forever. But that's not just some far-off idea. It has real effects even right now. He gets to know Jesus' power to resurrect our lives from death and sin into newness, to have real transformation. He gets to know Jesus through sharing in his sufferings. And that might seem daunting to us, but sharing in his sufferings, as we do that, we learn more about the one who suffered and died for us all the way to the end out of love. And through the sufferings that we share, he uses them to make us more like him as the one who is ever faithful, the one who is obedient even to the point of death. So none of this is living a passive life. Even though we're given everything, even when we're giving Jesus here, by faith, there is an active pressing forward in how we live. But the shift in motive here makes all the difference. And what's that motive? It's love. It's done out of a love for God and for Jesus Christ, precisely because Paul has been given Christ. He's tasted of his kindness, and he wants more. He must know him. See, there are two motives that you can take to base your life around, guilt and love. Both of them are powerful, but what's the one that lasts? It's love. Love is the one that has the longevity to go the long haul because it never tires. It's never burdened. Guilt is just going to burn you out. Knowing and gaining Christ comes through faith, not through works. Knowing him involves experiencing his power to transform our lives. And it's lived by following him in works which come out of faith and love, not an obligation that's based upon bare works themselves. And when you shift your motives away from trying to gain him by works or trying to maintain your relationship by works rather than ongoing faith and ongoing reliance upon his grace, as you center it, your life in, in love upon him, you will find so much freedom. And that will allow you to rejoice. We're going to look at one more shift here. Last one is a shift in culture. Shift in culture. It's learning and continuing to be shaped by this. And we go back to the beginning in verse 1. Paul says he's not writing anything new. He continues to write the same things to them again and again. Christ 
faith, his righteousness and not our works. And we may think that might get old or it might just turn into some rote idea. Doesn't Paul have anything better to say? Paul doesn't think so. He recognizes that it's in their best interest, he says, to write this over and over to them. In fact, he says it's safe for them. It's safe for you. He sees that it's in their best in, or it's, uh, it's their best interest to write this over and over to them because he knows the human default. He knows the tendency for us to want to slip back again into works. And sometimes it's because we're obstinate people who want to cling to whatever it is that we can grasp at. Something that we can point to. But for a lot of us, it's just, it's unintentional. We just forget sometimes. We slide back into that works paradigm again. Paul knows the tendencies of his readers. We're no different. We need to hear Christ for sinners and the paradigm of grace and faith over and over again. It's in our best interest too. If we're to be truly Christ-centered, gospel-driven people, then we need it, the gospel. We need him, Christ, given to us again and again. Every aspect of our lives needs to be touched by the gospel. We all have areas of our lives that are being slowly transformed by grace. There are darkened corners of our hearts that still need to be gripped by the reality of Christ Jesus given for us, for sinners. And without hearing that constantly, without being given him over and over, those areas will lay as they are. So it means being steeped in Christ for who he is to soak deep into our soul and become who we are. See, learning the gospel is like learning a new culture. You can't truly know a culture or be at home in it just by dipping your toe in it here or there. Learning a culture requires immersion. It requires getting into it and totally immersing in it until it becomes second nature. It means taking on a whole new mindset, just like cultural immersion. It changes the categories in which you think and in which you view view the world. And it isn't easy either. The ideas of grace and of receiving by faith are foreign to our default of works. They're antithetical to each other. And so learning them, taking them on and taking them into us can take a really long time. Just like learning a new culture does. And there can even be frustrations through the process as we slowly take on a new set of values and learn how to live with them. It means picking up a new language, engaging in new customs and cultural rituals. It challenges our deeply held beliefs and our assumptions. But over time, it sinks into us. We begin to think and speak in these new ways, even unconsciously. So that any given moment when we react or when we speak into a situation, what comes out first? Are our words tinged with Christ? Is the first foot to fall one that is characterized by knowing grace and not self-righteousness? That takes time. And we're all at various, various stages along the way in the process, but it begins with immersing ourselves deeply in Christ Jesus. And as it begins with him, it also continues with him. Continuing along the process of being shaped by Jesus and his gospel means always being brought back to him. And Paul's words here in verse 1, that it isn't troublesome or wearying to always bring the same things. 
Those resonate deeply with me. It's not burdensome. It's not tiring for Daryl or myself to bring the same Christ, the same gospel back to you again and again, week after week. In fact, you want to know what would be wearisome and burdensome? If it would be giving you our own thoughts and opinions on life. But you know what? We don't want to give you that. We don't want to come here and tell you what you need to think politically or how you need to handle different situations in life or give you good life advice. We don't want to do any of that because that's not actually life for you. What's life for you? It's Jesus Christ. What's life for us? It's the same. It's Jesus Christ. That's what we need. That's what we all need. So that no matter your, your stage in understanding the faith, whether this is all new to you, whether you're questioning who Jesus is, whether you're just beginning to get acquainted with Christianity, no matter how long it is that you've been walking with Jesus, the answer is still the same for all of us. Your needs are alike. To be given Christ Jesus who lived, who died, who rose again for lost and sinful people just like we all are. We're not going to change from that here because this is where the refreshing waters of life are found. If you're wanting to grow in Jesus, then you need to hear again and again about this same Jesus. And that's why all of our sermons have Christ in them somewhere and somehow. Even if he's not immediately apparent from the text, we're not one-trick ponies. Well, maybe we are, but if we do so, we do it unapologetically. That's why we have a robust liturgy throughout our service, because the liturgy here that goes on in this Sunday morning is also, it informs the liturgy of how we live our everyday lives. Worship here and what is at the center informs how we go about the worship in our regular lives. It involves the repeated cycles of confession and humility, receiving from God's mercy in Christ and then our response. And it's why we celebrate the Lord's Supper every week as we will here in a moment. Because this is where the Lord Jesus Christ feeds us and where he nourishes us with his very body and blood, where he binds himself to us by his spirit in the bread and the wine. He gives us his very life to strengthen us in our faith, to renew his promises to us, and to give us the emblems of his love again and again. So friends, it's, brothers and sisters, it's not a burden to any of us to come back again and again to Christ Jesus. It's our life. It's joy. So let's pray and let's prepare our hearts now as we come to his table. Lord God, it is all too easy to attempt to live our lives and to attempt to relate to you by our works. It's all too easy to do that, but it's all too hard for us to actually live that way. In fact, it's death to us. So we pray and we ask, we beg that you would show us instead the ways that we are prone to being able to do that. The times that we are forgetful in that. That you would show us our inadequacies, our own inabilities, that you would point out to us in the day to day of our failures so that we will come back again and again to Jesus. We pray that you would show us the beauty of Jesus Christ, of who he is, and that he is for us. And Lord God, we ask that you would change our motives of how we go about our lives, that we would live out of a love for you and not just act out of guilt. Let us hold firmly to the gospel, this beautiful gospel that 
Paul's written about. And that has a very reality in Jesus Christ. And now as we come to the table where he feeds us, we pray that you would show us his beauty again. That we would come with confession, that we would come seeing us for who, who we are, but come and seeing Jesus for who he is, our perfect spotless righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we do now come to uh, this, the table, this beautiful meal that Jesus sets out for us. It's a privilege to be able to come to week after week where